having a good time with friends, soothing or triggering. Why are we triggered after having a great time out with friends? It seems counterintuitive, but it actually makes sense. Normally, the feeling is one of frustration, anger, despair, wanting to give up, injustice, disregard for ourselves and betrayal again. Let's see what the possible reasons for this contradiction might be. We are on the road to recovery from our spouse's infidelity. Months after D-Day, we are giving our love for him or her a chance. We want to rebuild our marriage, make it strong and infidelity proof. Our ex-unfaithful spouse has been remorseful, ended the affair, and we decide we want to spend some time with common friends. After all, looking into ourselves and into our marriage during the healing process is exhausting mentally, physically and emotionally. We deserve a break every now and then. Truces are for resting. During the first months following D-Day, I looked forward and enjoyed the dates with Mark. It was only the two of us, as I couldn't bear pretending we were the same couple our friends knew. So, the rule was that if our friends didn't know about the affair, we wouldn't meet up with them. This was an important rule. I will repeat it. The rule was that if our friends didn't know about the affair, we wouldn't meet up with them. Obviously, time passes and you have to make up your mind as to whether you will let the friendship wilt or you will make an effort and start socializing again. The first few times we went out with friends who didn't know about the affair were followed by emotional flooding. Questions like, why am I doing this? I am covering up for him, this is so unfair. And many more would fill my mind and we would feel like we went back weeks or even months on our recovery timeline. Truces are for recovering your strength, but socializing seemed to be counterproductive. It does get better. We insisted on certain outings after recovering from the crises generated by some encounters, comments, places, and people. Every time, Mark and I would talk about exactly what triggered me and how we could react better if there was a next time. I needed lots of acknowledgement and appreciation for not talking about my pain in front of other people. After all, this is an issue between spouses and it only creates awkwardness when shared with acquaintances and friends. We did keep our circle of friends to share with small and that was enough to help me overcome the pain. At the same time, it made us face the disadvantages of disclosure. There was always tension during our second encounter with the friends we chose to tell because we knew they would be wondering how we were doing but wouldn't ask for the sake of discretion. That taught me it was better to keep things to myself. Writing was an escape route. My tribe on Twitter has been a lifesaver. And talking about my feelings with Mark after every triggering event helped me get to a better place. To socialize or not to socialize. Don't give up on socializing. 
One of the advantages of giving your marriage a second chance is that you keep your common assets and good friends are one of the most valuable. It is very difficult not to be able to tell everyone the truth about the pain you have been enduring because of your spouse's betrayal. One of my tweets agreed that maybe this inability to talk about the pain is what triggers the flood of negative emotions after socializing. She added that it might be the same trigger on Monday mornings when she's back at work. We carry on with our lives as if the affair never happened, while we are not the same person inside. The effect of the triggers diminishes with time. We grow with much pain and become a better and wiser version of ourselves. We learn how to manage if our spouse is no longer with us. Remember, we are not going to live forever. Let's make the most of what we have today. I hope that focusing on the glass half full will help you feel gratitude for what, what you already have. Louise Hay affirms that the more you focus on the positives, the more abundance will come your way. If you focus on your progress and your spouse's efforts, you will feel better every day as individuals and as a couple. If you are alone, focus on what you have, on the good things, on your blessings. As you heal, socializing will become a more enjoyable activity, almost as enjoyable as it was before the affair. You will start attracting friends that are more in tune with the new you and you will be creating new happy memories with your spouse in this second marriage you are both working on. Or you will learn to live without a spouse if that is the case. You will find a new you and a new life and new friends. You normally give what you need. One of the useful nuggets I gathered from Tony Robbins seminars about relationships is that we all have different needs. We don't normally spell them out for our partner, so we end up getting what our partner thinks we need based on what their own needs are. Reflecting on an example from six months past D-Day. When we were on the six months after D-Day, Mark and I went out with some friends from his work. These were good old friends from the time we had both just finished university. They didn't know about the affair we were recovering from. Only Mark's office manager knew, as I had informed her on D-Day so she could keep an eye on her boss. I did it for the sake of any important decisions that had to be made on that day. Mark and I had been avoiding socializing since the summer when I discovered the affair. So I felt it was time to start reconnecting with old friends. Sometimes not knowing can lead to dangerous destinations. And that's what happened when one of Mark's closest friends, but not close enough that he knew about the affair, brought up the topic of Mark's new younger personal assistant. He asked me, have you seen Mark's new personal assistant, Valentina? No, I replied calmly. Why do you ask? Well, 
she is young. Mm. A new personal assistant after having that older lady for so long. He was getting on my nerves. Quicker than fire spreads on alcohol. What was he implying? I said, I haven't met her and I don't understand why you are bringing up this topic in this tone. At this point, all eyes were on us. I must have raised my voice without realizing. Mark squeezed my hand in panic because he knew I was upset about him having a new potential affair partner to connect with at work. I had hinted a few weeks earlier at his sister's home during Christmas lunch that we had to be extra careful with this new attractive woman being around him for so many hours, taking care of his, of his diary and his lunches. We didn't discuss his new personal assistant in December, and we didn't discuss it during this evening in late January either. Mark is the type of person who needs to be left alone when something is bothering him. So he gave me space to get over that inappropriate, politically incorrect comment of his friend slash colleague. This was the explanation I got three days later after much unnecessary suffering. Before the end of the unfortunate conversation at the dinner table, Mark had said in an attempt to make his friend stop, I have nothing to do with this new personal assistant. She's under Rose's management. Rose being the hypothetical name of the only person present who knew about the affair, who managed Mark's office. I followed up with the following statement in an upset tone. I hope that Rose will make sure that things are kept strictly professional in the office because it is important for all people to get their priorities in order. To this, another friend made a poignant comment, evidence that there was an elephant in the room. The insolent man who started the avalanche of emotions in me that evening went on to say that Mark was such a good guy, so I had nothing to fear. To this, I reacted decisively with, just stop right there and don't say another word. Mark seconded me and the guy eventually stopped talking. I breathed and breathed to calm down. Mark could have been clearer in his answer to his insolent friend or pointed out that this is not the way you talk about someone who is not present, at least. But after we explicitly ask our friend to change the subject, everyone awkwardly found a way to engage in indistinct chit-chat. It all became a mess from there. We left the dinner party and Mark didn't bring the subject up on our drive back home. I didn't even know where to start, so I kept quiet. I was tired of always being the one to start the difficult conversations. That same night, we went home, enjoyed hysterical bonding, the great sex that sometimes follows D-Day, and carried on with our lives. Mark didn't mention anything the next day. It was a Sunday we spent together. And then dreadful Monday came when he went back to work where he had weekly meetings with the affair partner arranged by the new hot personal assistant. He had weekly meetings with the AP arranged by the new hot PA. 
That Monday night, to make things worse, he attended a business dinner without me. So we didn't get a chance to talk at all. Off he went to work on Tuesday and I disclosed the name of the affair partner to his office manager, Rose, first thing in the morning. It was a desperate way to let some of the pressure that had been building on me for the unspoken words Mark owed me from Saturday night. There was no communication from him all day, unlike other times when he knew I was upset and stayed in contact throughout the day after those business dinners without me. I eventually touched base and pointed out how he hadn't asked how I had been all day. He replied he was puzzled by what I had disclosed to Rose and reminded me of our safety agreement on not disclosing more information to other people. When he came back home on Tuesday evening, 72 long hours and one spillage after the mean comments of his stupid co-worker slash ex-friend for me, Mark finally acknowledged how inappropriate this man's remarks had been during Saturday at dinner. He eventually got there after I clarified how frustration had built up in me because he carried on as if nothing worth mentioning happened. I had no idea that he was on my side and that he agreed with my perception of our friend's remarks. I thought Mark's silence meant something else, like how I shouldn't have mentioned life priorities over a joke. That's how the insolent man defined his remarks once he saw that I became aggravated. It's just a joke, he said. I was astonished to realize that my husband could have avoided me 72 hours of hell. I could have always, I could have brought the subject up, but I didn't want to be the one always bringing up the triggers and then flood emotionally. I waited to see if Mark would start the conversation. Unfortunately, he didn't. I. It took me spilling the beans by revealing the affair partner's name to Rose for him to ask me, why did you expose us again with people at work after we agreed that it's not safe for our family? I wasn't sure if he would be able to get over this breaching of boundaries by me. Yet he was on my side. He was appalled by the comments of his male colleague friend and thought that I responded brilliantly during Saturday's, Saturday's dinner. But he never gave me this positive feedback until after I released some more poison against the other woman with his office manager. Mark was giving me time to chill, as he said. After 22 years of marriage, he had once more given me what he would have wanted had he been in my position. He was not able to see how much he would have helped me to overcome my pain if he would have acknowledged how out of place those insolent comments were right when they happened. Mark had even received a phone call from the stupid guy who obviously realized how his joke was out of place. The now ex-friend wanted to apologize. He had to wait for a third call attempt because Mark ignored the first call on Monday morning. As for Rose, Mark's office manager, she got to talk to my husband about the disrespectful remarks on Monday morning. She even went on to state how my reaction made it obvious to those who didn't know about the affair that something was going on. 
as I found out about the conversation that took place while I was left guessing, I could not but ponder how my husband's office manager got to talk about me with him and I had gotten zero feedback, nada. Not only that, on Tuesday, after I sent her the message with the name of the affair partner, she showed Mark my message and asked him that she wanted to stay out of it. I unfriended her on Facebook immediately so I wouldn't be tempted to message her ever again. Looking back and learning from the experience. This was such an unfortunate series of events that could have been avoided had there been better communication between the parties. To our credit, infidelity shatters so many concepts that we just needed some time to process and clarify what had happened. Still, four months after these events took place, I felt the need to write them down in my blog to let my, lead, my readers know that their partner's needs are not the same as theirs. We must always make sure we both understand what our partner needs most under certain circumstances. I had clearly told Mark many times before D-Day that the worst thing he can do when I'm upset is to give me space. I need proximity, hugs and conversations. He got better at giving me what I need and I got better at acknowledging that every person is just doing the best they can with the legacy they have. Like Esther Perel explains, two stories come together in a marriage. You have yours and your partner theirs. The probation idea helped. Almost 10 months after D-Day, we faced another one of my meltdowns. It was the mildest ever, triggered by Mark going back to work after being home on leave for over one week. So many thoughts and emotion rushed through my heart and mind during this post-infidelity stage that I wrote about it nine days after it happened and it seemed like a lifetime away. We get the impression that the emotions calm down with time, but what really happens is that we get used to this new state of reality. The PTSD is real and it creates a new me, a new us, a new perception of reality. I don't think I will ever trust again the way I trusted Mark until I discovered the affair. I will just know that I must enjoy what I have every day and that betrayal is only one possibility I might have to face in my life, like bereavement, anniversaries, award-winning, graduations, weddings, and all the other events available out there. Until then, I can only live my reality. I can only trust myself. Setting time boundaries. Over a month before my 10-month meltdown, I had asked Mark to up his game in his commitment to regain my trust. He nodded then, and he had upped it. That same day, I stated clearly to him that I was afraid he could take me for granted once he felt he had secured me in the marriage and cheat again. The second time round, he could use better lying skills and perhaps choose a different affair style. I had already explained to him that I didn't know if I could live with this uncertainty forever. 
I was also dreading holidays that could trigger my insecurities. That's why I had decided that my commitment to the recovery process would be until December 2019, once we lived through three trying periods coming up on the calendar, Easter, Summer and Christmas 2019. I told Mark he was going to be on probation to see how he could show growth and commitment to our love. It was also a way for me to test my feelings after those months had passed. I said, in January 2020, we will sit down and decide whether we will continue together or we will start planning our separation. One of the trials was over. Easter 2019 was gone and I wasn't triggered by the memories of Mark's gaslighting during Easter 2018. Those days had been awful. We passed our first trial with top marks. I felt so proud of our achievement. I knew it was important to celebrate the small victories during a fair recovery. If you're working on recovery, you must give yourself and your partner all the credit you deserve for going through the challenging conversation and for finding other ways to grow as a couple. Maybe being aware of a potential trigger on the calendar made me brace and prepare for it. Letting Mark know how the celebrations could bring back painful memories perhaps had the effect Brené Brown describes when you make yourself vulnerable to others. She says that shame wilts when it is exposed. Shame wilts when it is exposed. Perhaps I felt my insecurity and by stating it out loud, it didn't gain momentum. I don't know. But certainly learning to pinpoint my needs had been key in my recovery. Mark had also been expressing his feelings more clearly to me. He asked for encouragement and also exposed his fear to the light. He told me he was afraid that I wouldn't be able to forgive him. This helped me acknowledge to him that I appreciated his improved communication skills and that he had to share his frustration with a trusted confidant. If not with me, he had to find someone else. But this was key for him not falling again in the rut that had led to the affair. My Twitter tribe's input. Members of my Twitter infidelity tribe chipped in on how deadlines had helped them in recovery. You can check out the thread. Something like this. I wrote, blog post idea. Setting time frames helps to move on. After talking about being on probation with my husband until end of December this year, and we will decide to stay together or split in January. It's given me peace and a better perspective of my feelings for him and priorities. May 18, 2019. One of my tweets suggested a time frame with the opposite effect no constraints to stay in the relationship for a period of time. Hmm. It seemed out of the question to me at first, but then he explained it and it made sense. You both commit to remaining in the relationship for one day, one week, one month, or one year, no matter what you express to the other party. In this way, your partner feels more at ease to share their true feelings with you. Hmm. I like this idea. It balanced the rather threatening tone of my deadline to Mark.
I also found an encouraging case of a couple who had grown together 12 years past D-Day. She wrote, I did the same. I set a time frame giving yourself permission to walk away with a commitment to work on the relationship until then. Then when you get there, see things that have changed and then set another time frame. It, subs it stops you floundering because it sets boundaries. I have also grown to realize that not giving our marriage a chance is going to add to the pain of the betrayal. The Twitter tribe has helped in that realization too. I tweeted on May 18th. It wouldn't hurt any less if you left or kicked him out. Quite the opposite. You'd have to face other challenges. Most importantly, you will miss the chance to love the man you still love and who is working to win you back. What probation meant? Defining the present as a probation period gave me peace. I suppose this should be a permanent state. Marriage counselors recommend choosing to love your partner every single morning. I suppose we cannot grasp the full meaning of such a true statement when we are newlyweds. We might hear it from older couples, but we are still too close to the belief that finding the one is the achievement, when it is really only the beginning of a whole new challenge. Children's stories should elaborate on the they lived happily ever after ending that usually follows a happy wedding or commitment celebration between two parties. We are responsible for being happy. We must choose happiness every single day and it starts with love. The love we should give ourselves first so that we can share our health and energy with those we then choose to love. <laughs>